finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Well, there's a fascinating study done a few years back by two psychologists from Cornell University in which they wanted to understand the importance of attitude in light of one's circumstances. And to do this, they studied Olympic medal winners. And they were specifically looking at the satisfaction level of gold winners versus silver winners versus bronze winners. And what they found surprised them. Because what they found is that bronze medalist third place winners were hands down quantifiably happier than silver second place winners. And here's why. Silver medalist winners tended to focus on how close they came to winning the gold and hence they were not satisfied with winning a silver. While bronze medalists, and you gotta love this, tended to focus on how close they came to not winning at all and we're really happy to get a bronze medal. And this attitude, this perspective, made all the difference in the happiness level of medalist winners. Imagine that, third place winners, because of their attitude and perspective, were actually happier than second place winners. Uh, the psychologists at Cornell would go on to give this phenomenon a name. They called it counterfactual thinking. The kind of thinking that actually would seem to go against the facts of a situation, or as I would simply say, allowing one's attitude to determine your joy. And guys, I think there is something to all of this. I think there's something to the reality that some people go through a nasty marital breakdown and remain bitter all their lives, while there's other people that go through a similar breakdown and they become more loving, more forgiving, more compassionate, and more faith-filled. I think there's something to the reality that some people go through a childhood rife with economic struggle and become miserly and hoarding all of their life, while others go through the same experience and they become grateful and even generous in adulthood for what they have. I think there's something to the reality that some people experience vocational disappointment in their lives, like a dead-end job or a job that they lost, that they loved, and they become perpetually grumpy and moody for the rest of their lives. We all know people like that. While others who hate their job or lose the one they loved somehow rise above it and find joy, purpose, and peace nonetheless. And the list goes on and on. You and I know hundreds of scenarios in life where people have gone through very difficult circumstances and some end up doing well and some end up not doing so well. And I'm telling you, it all comes down to attitude. So what we're going to do over the next couple of months here at our church, I guess we're calling it this winter, it's hard for me to call this stuff winter, but is that we're going to take a look at this thing called attitude. And believe it or not, we're going to use as our theme verse and as our guide in this entire series just one Bible verse. And it's one that I hope you will memorize and never forget because it's one that is jam-packed full of truth and knowledge. 
It's one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. It's found in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And so if you brought a Bible, open up to there right now. We're going to park in front of this passage here today, and then it's going to be the springboard for this entire series. You'll see why in a second here. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's on your outline or obviously up here on your monitors. Let me read the passage for you. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Folks, I'm telling you, this is without without a doubt the most succinct and powerful attitude-shaping verse in all of the Bible. And we're going to spend eight weeks, beginning next week, exploring these eight attitudes that are outlined here, eight things that we're told to think about that can become part of our mental, emotional, and hence spiritual DNA as we go throughout each day. So we're going to look at things like how to think with reality in mind, whatever is true, How to think with respect of others in mind, whatever is honorable. How to think with holiness and purity in mind, whatever is pure. How to think with excellence, if there is any excellence. Think about these things and more. And so there's eight attitudes that are given to us here that I'm telling you, God's got me in a a headlock on these right now in my personal life, which is why I want to talk to you about them. But there are eight things that can literally change the way that you and I go through each day as we do our best to walk with God. You know, I'm not a fan of the phrase attitude adjustment because my parents used it quite often when I was a child. But essentially, this is what this series can be for you and me if we need it. It can be an attitude adjustment, or if you think you're doing well, then hey, it can be a keep on keeping on for you. It's all about attitude. Now, before we dive into the deep end of these eight attitudes that are listed here, what we need to do in the remaining time we have today is allow this passage here in Philippians 4, now don't miss this, to set the tone and tenor of this entire series by specifically showing us how we should approach these eight attitudes. In other words, we need to allow Philippians 4 here to show us how to use these eight attitudes in our very lives. And the key to understanding what I'm talking about here is found when we laser beam focus on just one word in this passage, but it's a word that's repeated six times. It's the title of our message here today, and it's the word whatever. You probably caught it when I read it earlier because it's repeated like a scratch CD. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable. Here's what you guys got to remember. When Paul the Apostle was writing these words 2,000 years ago, he didn't have a pen and paper. He didn't have a computer with a monitor. He was writing this on parchment leaves, painstakingly, and somehow by the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God prompted him to repeat this word whatever six times as he wrote it here. I mean, there's got to be something to this word than just repeating it. And so whatever is an important word for you and I to begin this series on. Now, what makes this kind of challenging is that our current contemporary culture has actually hijacked this word whatever and has taken it to places that the Bible knows nothing about. 
Let me explain what I'm talking about. When you look closely at how our current culture uses this word and concept of whatever, it primarily uses it in two distinct ways. The first way is what I call the sarcastic teenager way, and we all know this one. It goes like this. Hey, Susie, I need you to clean your room before you go out tonight. Do I have to, Dad? Yes, you have to. Uh, Like, whatever. Have you ever heard a kid say that? Raise your hand if you have. Almost all of us have. If you haven't, get around them. They love this word. And we've all experienced this. It's what I call the sarcastic, dismissive, I think you're an idiot use of the word whatever. And it's used a lot by our younger generation. It's a key part of their vocabulary. And it's what they think of and associate, quite frankly, when they hear the word whatever. And as you're going to see in a second, this is not how the Bible uses it. It doesn't use it in a sarcastic, dismissive way, even though that's how our culture has hijacked this term. Now, as you hang on to that, uh, there's a second way that those of us who might be a little bit older tend to use this way, and and I would argue it's equally deceptive. Uh, We grew up with what I call the K-sera-sera way of using the word whatever. Uh, This was introduced, popularized, and cemented in the mid-1950s when Doris Day sang a brand new song in the Alfred Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. And just so that we're all clear on how they use the word whatever that I would argue became ingrained in baby boomers and the builder generation, let's see a clip from the movie and you'll see exactly what I mean. So look up here on the screen. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Now, some of you are going right now, ah, the good old days. That's what you're thinking. I mean, you cannot overstate this song. It was an immediate hit in 1956. It hit the number two on the Billboard Hot 100. It won an Academy Award for the best original song in 1956. It was the theme song for the Doris Day Show from 1968 to 1973. And the American Film Institute rated this song one of the top 100 film songs of the 20th century coming in at 48. It's an amazing song that many of us grew up with. And here's what I need you to know about this song today. It's heretical. It really is. You were saying, what's heretical? Wrong. Anti-biblical. That's what I'm saying. I said that to Kim this week. I said, I'm going to play the Doris Day song, K Sarah Sarah, whatever will be, will be. And she said, and I said, I'm going to tell them it's heretical. She goes, well, isn't that kind of an overstatement? And I said, no, it's really not. Uh, Because we have to analyze our current culture this way. Here's what I mean by that. When Doris Day sings, you know, the future is not ours to see, whatever will be, will be, que sera, sera, she is not telling us to trust God for the unknown future. She is not telling us to trust in divine sovereignty for our very lives. No, this song in its best day was about fate. 
It was about chilling out and letting whatever comes come, que sera sera, it's Spanish, for whatever will be, will be. Sit back, don't worry, let everything go, and just trust in fate. In fact, some of you will find this funny, but I believe this. The usage of this word, I think, paved the way for the hippies of the 1960s. I think this became ingrained in the countercultural movement with its carefree attitude, complete with not having a job and driving across the country in a VW bus. I think you can trace it back to 1956 with K. Sarah. It's a highly secularized use of this concept and word, whatever will be, will be. And for those of us who haven't bought into the sarcastic teenager use of this word, this is how we tend to see this word. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. So add all this up. You got the younger generation with its sarcastic like whatever, and you got the rest of us with our carefree, fate-focused, unemployed version of this term, whatever will be, will be. And here's what you need to know. Along comes the Bible. And using this word six times in just one verse, it uses it in a totally different fashion than our common usage today. Don't miss this. What the Bible does with this word is it strips it of its sarcastic usage. It jettisons this dependency on fate, and it actually launches us into the deep end of eight life-giving attitudes. The Bible, and Philippians 4.8 here, is going to ask us to take charge of this word and apply it positively to our life, as you're going to see in a minute, and you're going to love this, with loads of vision and a lot of creativity as we try to develop the kind of attitude that does nothing but enhance the very fabric of our lives. You see, here's the main difference between the way we use this word today and the way the Bible's going to use it. We use this word today as a response to life, right? I mean, that's what that sarcastic usage and the Doris Day usage have in common. It's a response to life. Whatever or whatever will be, will be. We're responding to life. The Bible's going to turn that on its end. The Bible is going to ask us to use this word as an active, initiating word that you and I use to develop the kind of attitudes that will give us joy and honor God. So we don't use the word whatever as Christians to respond to life, whatever will be, will be, or whatever. No, we use it to engage life. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, We're going to hijack this term back, and we're going to use it to engage the attitudes that God has for us. So what I want to do in our time remaining, we have just a few minutes left here, is I want to talk to you about what I call the power of a biblical whatever, or a PBW for short. The power of a biblical whatever. Because you see, if I'm reading Philippians 4.8 right, and I think I am, it's calling us to approach these eight attitudes with a resounding whatever. And so it's really important that you and I understand how the Bible uses this term whatever in the context that we're looking at. So let me explain. This word whatever back in Jesus's time, back in New Testament times, was actually a common word just like it is today. It was part of the Greek vocabulary. It's the Greek word hosos, and it appears in the New Testament 115 plus times, which is like a lot for one word. But what's most revealing about this Greek word back in Jesus's day is that it carries with it the idea of extent. 
That's really important for you to latch on to. This word literally means as many as or as much as. It's, it's a word of extent, talking about limitless volume or extent. So, for instance, you'll see, it's used in John 6, verse 11, when it tells the story of Jesus multiplying the fish and the loaves and then feeding the 5,000, and this is what it says. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, now here it is, as much as hosos they wanted. So people got to eat as much as they wanted. That was Jesus' miracle here. It was limitless quantity as much as, that's the Greek word here, hosos, that we translate back in Philippians as whatever. So please see, this is a word that is a visionary word, a, a, a word that extends possibilities in our lives. That's how the Bible uses the word whatever. And so now when we go back to Philippians 4 verse 8, carrying this connotation of extent and volume to it, what it's saying is that you and I should approach each and every one of these attitudes with a biblical whatever behind it. Essentially approaching each attitude with a spirit-led creativity, a spirit-led vision of how our lives can be shaped by these attitudes. I mean, if ever a word changes the tone and tenor of a verse, this word whatever does in this context here. You know, I, th I thought to myself, how do I, how do I convey it to, to you dear folks, uh, the power of this word whatever? Because as you're going to see as we apply this in a second, it really can affect your Monday through Saturday in a profound way. But before we do that, I want to just try one little exercise here that I think you'll, will help you see the importance of this little word here and how it really does become a game changer for our attitude. I, 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 I do this with a little bit of trepidation, but what I want to do right now is I'm going to put Philippians 4.8 up here on the screen, and I'm going to take the word whatever out of it. Now, I say with trepidation because we should never change the word of God, amen? I'm going to do this for a purpose and for a reason that you'll see in a minute. But look up here on the screen, and this is what it would look like if you took the word whatever out of Philippians 4.8. It would read like this, finally, brothers, if something is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and or worthy of praise, think about these things. And you say, well, that's not bad. And I'd agree with you. I, I mean, taking the word whatever out of this makes it still sound like the Bible. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of truth, kind of stoic and parental maybe, but still very good stuff. But now, let's read it once again, but this time with the right word added back in, and I want you all to read it with me together, Mountain Valley and Cactus and, and Chapel and Venue. I want us to all read it together. And here's what I want you to do. As we read it together, I want you to put the emphasis on the word whatever as we read it. Can you do that with me? So, so let's read it together. Come on, give me a click here. Yep. And, and, and let's, let's now read it as it's supposed to be read. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, that's how I think. Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intended this passage to be read, understood, and incorporated into our lives. With the emphasis there on, on whatever as it's repeated there six times. 
In short, we're to approach each and every God-honoring attitude laid out in this verse, not with some Eeyore-like mentality that says, okay, I guess I'll have to think like God wants me to. No, but with a God-given passion born of thousands of possibilities as you and I dream about all the whatevers associated with each of these attitudes. So as you go throughout your day, the power of a biblical whatever is this, that no matter what you face, you say to yourself, well, whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable or whatever is yeah, commendable, I, I, I can dream and think about how my attitude can and should be shaped by these things. It's the power of a biblical whatever used very differently than our world today. And I'm telling you, it changes everything. So let me wrap up this morning by sharing with you three things that applying a biblical whatever will do to your attitude. Three things that adding this word whatever in the right biblical way will do to each of these eight attitudes for you in this series. First, uh, notice that the power of a biblical whatever harnesses and focuses your attitude. It, It really does. It harnesses and focuses it. In other words, it hones your attitude with these eight traits of Philippians 4.8. And then as you add a biblical whatever to each one, it's going to sharpen your attitude to a God-centered point. And the the way that it does this, now don't miss this, is by protecting your attitude when you're vulnerable and even fragile. That, That by daring yourself to go through the exercise each day of saying whatever is true, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, if anything is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise. But by going through that exercise, it protects your attitude. It harnesses and focuses it. In fact, here's how powerful that this can be for you, is it can actually help you distinguish in your musing, in your thinking, because we're all musing and thinking all day long. It can actually help you distinguish in that between sinful bunny trails that I know we all go down, and then godly ones that God wants us to go down. I, I, as I said earlier, God's got me in a headlock on this verse. He really does. This actually was born in me sometime in the fall when I was struggling in my own attitude, and I'd known in this verse for years. And, and, and so I memorized it, and once again, this last fall, and I started to apply it throughout my week as I went through anything and everything. So every time my attitude was vulnerable, which it is quite often, I, I, I would just pause. And even if I'm driving down the road or walking to my next appointment or watching a show with Kim, I just mentally go through an attitude check to say, you know, is it true? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it honorable? And I'm telling you, it's powerful and gutsy when, when you dare to do this. I, I mean, think about an argument with your wife. Say you're having an argument with your wife or, or with your husband, and you think that you're right and you think they're wrong. And think what would happen if you would check your attitude uh, just with Philippians 4a. Just go with me on this. The first thing you'd say is, well, whatever is true. And right now you kind of feel justified. You say, because you know what? Here's what's true. I'm right and she's wrong. That's how you might begin this discussion here. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. If you really think that, if you think what is true is that she's completely out to lunch and that you're the one who's spot on, then okay, whatever is true. But then go to the next one. Whatever is honorable. We're going to learn in a couple weeks that word means respectful. That means we need to think with respect in mind. So even if you're as right as the rain with your boss or with your spouse or with your kid, the very next step, 
God says in your attitude is go right to this realm of respect. And how are you going to respond in a way that is honorable and respectful? And you're starting to get a little bit kind of itchy under the collar, aren't you? Then you go to the next one, whatever is just. And now you start to smile again. Because now you go, here's what's just. She should be in jail. And so you go, not only, not only am I right, and I'll get to the honorable thing, but justice means I'm, this woman needs to be locked up. And so you're feeling justified again. But then you go to the next one. Do you see how this works? And you go, whatever is pure. And you go, uh-oh. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be too pure to want to see my wife in jail. And then you go to the next one, whatever is lovely. That, that's going to be a very fascinating week for us. That word only appears once in the New Testament here. This isn't the word agape, which is the Greek word for love. This is a really unique word that literally means, and you aren't going to like this, but it's going to help your attitude. It means to please others. Not in a codependent, codependent enmeshing way, not some unhealthy way, but how can I bring pleasure through my attitude to another's life? And again, now you're going, whoa. Whatever is commendable, you know what that word means? Good reputation. Whatever others would commend you for. So, so, so Bob, if you're in your attitude and somebody goes, man, that guy's got a great attitude. I, I just commend him for that. that. That's what it's talking about here. Are, are you starting to see the power of a biblical whatever? I, I mean, we all lead very different, divergent lives with all different kinds of experiences. And so this isn't a one-size-fits-all. What's so cool about this is that the whatever changes us. It allows you to apply it to your specific life, however, with harnessing and focusing your attitude. You take eight attitudes and you say, whatever is true about these attitudes for my life, this is how I want to follow God in this moment. And I'm telling you, it's powerful and it really does work. Now, I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, Jamie, this is awfully confining. I, I mean, I'm limiting my attitude to basically all this God stuff, you know, and it's kind of confining and I don't know if I can do this. Well, let's go on to the second thing, that the power of a biblical whatever does for you, because here's something I think a lot of people miss, and that is that it's not confining. It actually expands and explodes, in a good way, your attitude. This is why the whatever is so key. Listen, Philippians 4 verse 8 is not saying to you and me, confine yourself to thinking this way or that way. It's not some legalistic tool that you're supposed to use at a checklist each moment of each day. No, with this whatever behind it, what it's doing is calling you, now don't miss this, to explore. Journey with God each moment of each day in your thinking and in your feeling how these eight attitudes can shape your various experiences. And the possibilities are endless. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, then go down that trail. Did you see the freedom in this? I mean, it's exploring new possibilities each moment of each day. Yeah, with the traits that God wants for you, I mean, we have to do life his way. That's what following Jesus is about. But there's a lot of freedom and joy in the whatever's here. And it really does allow life to become an incredible exploration of many, many options and opportunities that the Lord would have for you. And again, I know I'm saying this a lot, but it works. You know, we're going to talk about this more next week, but uh, on a very personal level, one of the reasons I struggle with attitude is that I tend to see myself as a realist, but those that know me tell me that my Achilles heel is that I can go from realism to negativism rather fast. 
Some of you are the opposite. Some of you are, are very positive people. You're, you're kind of Pollyanna in your outlook in life, and you've read a lot of Zig Ziglar books and things like that, and, and, and you're just very, very positive. And, and I love you, but I, I, that's not my struggle. My struggle, for those who know me, know that I try to think realistically about life, but I, I, can, I can cop a negative attitude if I'm not very, very careful. When I first came here to Scottsdale Bible Church in 2007, one of the biggest things we were dealing with that was very difficult was the music issue. Some of you might remember that. Wow. I mean, it just totally took me off guard. I got here, and, and everybody was missing Ed. Ed was our longtime, highly beloved uh, worship leader. And, 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 and though we had a good team behind the scenes, there was just a lot of things in flux. There were things that needed to be changed. We had a music style that was only blended. It was a one-size-fits-all on Sunday morning. And, and, and it was such a perfect blend that I quickly discerned that there was something in our blend to tick off just about everybody. And, and so, you know, I had people come up to me and say, our blend is too traditional. I mean, we need to have more, more, more loud rock music. And then others would say, you know what, our blend incorporates all these new choruses and where's the traditional stuff? And I'd go, oh my gosh, we, we, there's no way to win in this. We have a, a blend that, that's just really hard for some, if not many, of our people. And I got to tell you, this is where my temperament, I, I have to watch it, because there were times that I was sitting in my office trying to figure out what to do about this dilemma, and I thought this. I thought, just get over it. <laughs> it's music. It's notes. The thing that really matters is a sermon, so just get over. <laughs> I know that's not, it's not right to think that. Just get over it. And then I think to myself, stop giving me a hard time. I'm the new guy here. I'm 43 years old. And, and, and I'd start to think all these things. And then I'm smart enough to know, you know what? You better not bring that to the stage. You better not bring that to an elder meeting. You better not go anywhere with that because you're not going to win with that at all. Am I, Ed? That's not going to win the day. And, and so honestly, I, I've been doing this for years. I, I would start to apply, maybe not directly, but I'd start to think like Philippians 4.8. Go with me on this, whatever's true. You know what's true about our worship back then? Is that we really did have the kind of worship that needed to offer more alternatives. Because here's what's true. Worship is a powerful language that people speak, amen? It really is. And everything changed with Elvis. Everything changed in the mid-1950s when on the heels of the technological revolution, Instruments that we now plug in, like electric guitars and bass and drums that are now uh, more voluminous, everything changed with that. And so we have some in the church that love more enlightenment-based music, hymnology and things like that, and the more classic instruments. We have some that just want to rock the house. And that is what's true about worship in the 21st century. But then you ask yourself, well, what's honorable? What will honor God and honor people? And what hit me is that what's honorable is that we allow people to worship to the language that they speak. That this one size fits all probably is not going to be the way to keep unity in the long run because times have changed. And so we started to develop alternate, alternate times of worship and alternate kinds of music to the point that today, we have in our church traditional music, uniquely traditional in our chapel. We have blended here on the Shea campus in our worship center. And then we have contemporary at Cactus, Mountain Valley, and at the venue across campus, and on Saturday night here in the worship center. So when people now come to me with problems with the music, I say to them in a totally non-defensive way, hey, it's okay. 
we got something for you. And at the most, it might involve you changing the venue that you go to. But even won't even involve mainly changing the time. And we found that just through trying to be reasonable and me checking my attitude, we could work ourselves through this problem. What is just? What's pure? What's lovely, pleasing to others? What's going to give us a good reputation? What's excellent? What's worthy of praise? See, this really works in helping us explode and expand our thinking, our attitude, even when we're faced with problems at work, at home, at school, in the community, even here at church. The power of a biblical whatever expands and explodes your attitude. It's very, very life-giving. And then lastly, and with this we're going to be done, it frees and liberates your attitude. Simply put, when you begin to think as God wants you to think, when you begin to develop an attitude based on the power of a biblical whatever that, 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 that harnesses these eight attitudes given here, I'm telling you, it frees you from fleshly, stinking thinking and allows you to have the kind of attitude that's befitting of a follower of Jesus. I was with a dear pastor friend on Thursday. I, I, I don't know if I want to tell you who, but he used to have long white hair. He leads a Bible study in the community, and he pastored East Valley Bible Church for about 20 years. It's Schrader. I was with Schrader on Thursday, and and, and Tom and I were talking uh, just about the new year. And I, I love Tom because he's so colorful and he, and he really has a rich way of following God and thinking. And, you know, for those of you who know Tom, one of the things we love about Tom is that he's really sarcastic. And, and, and he's ironic in his thinking and he's sometimes satirical, but he's, but he's a rich, deep thinker. And, and as Tom and I were talking about the new year, he said, you know, one of the things I want to work on this year is my cynicism. Now, I got that. If you, if you are all somebody who appreciates sarcasm, like I do, then what you know is, is that there's a very fine line between sarcasm and cynicism. It's one thing to be kind of fun-loving, sarcastic about goofy things in a fallen world, but when you get very cynical about things and they tend to go together, it goes into a dangerous place. And that's one of the things I love about Tom. He said, you know, well, I, I, I mean, I, I am who I am, but, you know, I want to be careful, especially as I get older and I'm more bothered by children. And now I got young people running my church and all these things. You know, he said, I, I just got to be careful in my attitude. And, and again, I love it. He didn't even know we're studying this as a church. And I thought, that's what I love about godly people. That's what I love about godly men and women is that they're not afraid to say, hey, I need to follow more God's way in the fineries of my life because I know that by doing so, I'm going to give glory to him and most likely the byproduct will be joy to me. And that's the way you need to see this series, guys, is that this has the power to free and liberate your attitude. No one's trying to get in your way here. We're trying to help you. I'm trying to help you follow God in a way that will change your life. So here's what this series can be about for you and me. I'm hoping that this is all about new habits of thinking and feeling that bring a powerful change in our attitude. And the key word there is habit. Let me close with this thought. I was reading an article by John Ortberg, who's one of my favorite authors. I love Ortberg. He writes so well uh, a little while back. And Ortberg said, said this in the article. He said, habits eat willpower for breakfast. Habits eat willpower. Do you, do you know what he's getting at there? Here's what he's trying to say. 
You and I tend to use life or function life with willpower. That's what New Year's resolutions are about. And so, say, Anthony, you know, says, I want to keep my weight off, and it's now January, and so, man, I'm just going to muster up all the willpower I can when I go out to eat or when I'm hungry at home, and, you know, it's all about willpower. The problem with willpower is that usually willpower doesn't have a lot of practice before it because it's more of an immediate thing. Willpower is usually just you trying to muster up all the immediate energy you can to overcome something in the present. And it usually doesn't have, again, a lot of habitual stuff behind it. And so, honestly, using willpower is kind of like trying to be a professional football player without ever practicing and going out on the field and saying, you know what, I'm going to catch that ball, I'm going to catch that ball, I'm going to catch that ball, and then you miss the ball. And that's what happens with many of us with willpower, and that's why we fail at it is we try to muster up all the immediate energy to not be angry or to not overeat or to not swear to whatever we're trying to overcome at that moment, and we fail, and then we go, gosh, what's wrong with me? Well, there's nothing wrong with you. Here's what's happened is you haven't developed a habit. Because you see, habits eat willpower for breakfast. When you learn to develop a habitual way of thinking and feeling and even behaving, burning it into your mind and your heart and even your spiritual life, you will find that willpower is needed less and less. And that's what Ortberg is after here. So, so I'm not looking for quick fixes for any of you in this series. I'm really not. You guys know my pastoral heart. But what I am hoping is that we can start to develop some habits of thinking, some habits of feeling, some habits that are going to honor God as followers of his son Jesus because habits eat willpower for breakfast. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace, for the truthfulness of your word and how it can literally, through the power of your spirit, change our lives. And Lord, that's what I pray for, for these dear people here and in our congregations and venues, that God, as we focus a bit as a church on our attitudes, each of us individually, that God, we would start to go down roads of exploration and vision and creativity as we think about in our daily life what is true And Lord, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And that, Lord, as we do, would you change us so that we might be counterfactual to our circumstances. And that, Lord, we can be those who might win a bronze and be happier than those who have a silver. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. We all say together, amen. Amen.